Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this episode, we hear Sam Tomlinson, partner for Media Assurance at PwC, talking to Phil Smith, the former marketing chief at Kraft Foods and Camelot, who for a year now has been Director General of the UK advertiser industry body, ISBAR. Listen as they discuss the winners and losers of the GDPR data rule change, how procurement and marketing people can get along better, brand owners bringing their ad tech in-house, and the trade press tendency to conflate all consultancies into one bucket. So Phil, as uh, Director General of UK Advertisers Association, ISBAR, as you survey the state of advertising in the UK at the moment, what's front of mind for you? I think the thing that's most in my mind is the, is the first of the four themes we talked about at ISBAR's conference uh, last March, which is about helping to create a transparent, accountable and uh, responsible media marketplace. Uh, and accountability is probably the thing that's uh, foremost in my mind uh, at the moment in a, in a number of ways. The first is, is about accountability on the part of the big technology platforms, uh, and uh, especially when it comes to uh, standards of um, independent uh, audience measurement, uh, in which we're uh, engaged in moving moving things on, uh, but also standards of viewability as well. Uh, and uh, many of the issues that flow out of the programmatic value chain, uh, we believe, like ad fraud uh, and uh, brand safety, where we've been very heavily involved over the course of the last year, and where most recently we've seen some big moves, particularly on the part of, uh, of Google. Probably the, the second thing that's most on my mind is about... Um, the alignment of agency and client interests. Uh, we set out a, an objective to um, help make our media services framework better adopted in the uh, in the UK as a whole during the course of last year. I think we've made huge progress on that front. There's there's more to do, uh, and uh, you've been helping us on the uh, uh, on the work we've been doing with the uh, with the major agency groups. Uh, but it seems to me that in the um, environment we now found, find ourselves, it's important not just for advertisers to speak with one voice, and that's locally and globally, but we need to be speaking with the agencies with one voice too as well. So uh, we, we talked platforms first there, accountability uh, and uh, adver- client agency alignment. Um, on the, uh, around platforms, th- sort of themes that keep recurring to me is, you know, traditional media obviously has always had a high degree of independent verification, independent uh, oversight of, of, the, of the quality of the, the audience data. Um, and it does feel as though uh, the big tech platforms have been, first of all, uh, in many instances allowed to describe themselves as platforms, not, not publishers. Um, and, and then where they have been looking at audience data, they've been self-verifying rather than uh, uh, having independent third parties look at it. And, it. and it feels as though that must be an unsustainable position, surely, uh, in the I, medium term. I, I think that's the case. And that theme of marking your own homework is something which uh, the big technology companies themselves acknowledge is something that uh, needs to change. So many of them already... Well, Two of them, at least, are starting to open themselves up to third-party uh, party verification. Uh, I mean, I think that that theme of marking your own homework goes more broadly as well. So, you know, we know from consumer research that um, 
while people think that traditional media, TV, radio, press, in a vague way they know is regulated, as they know the, the advertising is regulated and they may or may not know the names of Ofcom and the ASA, they do think of the um, digital world as a bit of a wild west where you know, it's buyer beware uh, and that sense of a lack of accountability uh, applies to content and to advertising as well. And that is definitely, we think, a contributor to the erosion of trust in the, in the media marketplace as a whole. Uh, and I think uh, audience measurement is certainly a you know, critical issue, but is, you know, is one facet of a broader picture. I don't know how that resonates for you. Yeah, so at PwC, um, we do a lot of work with media owners around the quality of their audience data. Um, and I definitely have a view that fundamentally advertising is about getting you know, the right advert in front of the right audience in the right context. And 2017, there was obviously a huge focus around context um, you know, in, through the brand safety issues. Um, and I feel as though perhaps there was less focus on, on the audience as well. Brand, context, critically important. Audience, also critically important. And a lot of the projects that we've done have... Um, suggested to us that the quality of media owner first party data in mm. industry jargon is often much 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 better quality than, than third party data mm. and i feel as though that's an area that hasn't yet been fully explored by advertisers and agencies i think i think that that is right I and mean, it's what you know it's one of the reasons why we joined up with the ipa last year with our call for uh, independent uh, audience measurement the matter of fact white papers is what we launched in in june uh, and we've been working with um, our big members some of them uh, global and with the uh, big technology platforms too to seek to get a better alignment of uh, of audience measurement across the across the industry um, but the com- Comparison of apples with apples is quite a difficult thing to do, you know, as we as we've seen in uh, uh, in some of the discussions around how do you get um, you know how do you get YouTube and Barb to talk to each other, for example. Yeah, there's there's obviously real challenges there, um, and where you have third party data providers, I think life will get only get more complicated once we move past May. Yeah, um, you have this situation where even if the third party data is accurate, which it might well not mm. be. And even if it has been verified by somebody, which it probably hasn't, you will then have a question with GDPR um, and e-privacy once that's regulations finalised, which is, can you even be using that audience data uh, in the first place? I think that's a, a huge question. Um, and, and for ISBAR, GDPR is one of our top three or four, uh, four priorities for helping to uh, guide and steer uh, members safely through troubled waters. Um, uh, as we see it, there's quite a lot of progress that's been made on direct marketing, which is largely going to rely on legitimate interest as its, uh, as its um, ability to keep on doing what it currently does. But I think when it comes to online behavioural advertising, there's such a big range of uh, view as to what the future will be after, after May, ranging from the, the nuclear option that says anything that risks the intermingling of first party and, and, and third, third party data is going, to, uh, is going to get you into real trouble unless you have you know, very, very clunky and explicit consent uh, to, uh, you know, to those who are saying it's all right, we'll carry on, it's pretty well business as, uh, as usual. Uh, and I suspect in, until we start to see some case law coming through, we're going to be advising uh, advertisers to stay on the side of, of caution because ultimately liability is going to uh, en- end up back on their door. Yeah. I, I certainly think uh, as we've looked at how clients are preparing for GDPR, um, one, of the, one of the things we're seeing at PwC is uh, certainly uh, companies are now aware it's coming, which is a, a big step forward from perhaps where they were 
12 months ago, um, where they are running internal projects to prepare. I think a lot of organizations have focused in on identifying the personal data that they hold um, and identifying the third parties that they work with. But all of that identification doesn't actually help you mitigate your risk in any way. You, you need to stop planning and start doing. And I think that the uh, clock is ticking as, as we get towards May. Sam, I mean, if you look across that industry landscape and you think about the advent of GDPR, who do you think is most uh, at risk? You know, is it the media owners? Is it the agencies? Is it going to end up with the advertisers, the tech companies? Probably I have two different perspectives on this. I have one perspective, which is um, companies that have direct contact with consumers are those that are in the, the best position because they're the ones that can get that informed consent for you know legitimate use. So that should play to the strengths of traditional media owners because generally speaking, those brands are trusted. Should also play to the strengths of advertisers. And the ones who are more likely to struggle in that environment are ad tech intermediaries in particular. Think of all those companies on a loom escape that you basically have never don't recognize the name, you don't know what they do. And if people like you and me don't know what they do, then the average man on the street certainly doesn't know what they do. So how do they get consent? So in that sense, challenge for ad tech, opportunity for advertisers and media owners. However, conversely, um, if you have a data breach, the companies who are most likely to suffer reputationally are those that are recognized by the people on the street. So Which is the advertiser. The advertiser or the media owner. It's not going to be the ad tech intermediary. So the ad tech intermediary's business model is the one that's most challenged, but they don't have a reputation to lose. And with the ad tech uh, intermediary, do you think that they will be the ones who end up picking up the bill when it comes to the financial liability? I mean, there's a, a, you know, a big question around who's prepared to indemnify whom on... Uh, on GDPR, you know, we know that's something in the work we've been doing with the uh, contracts with agencies. Yeah, I think I think the challenge there is will very much depend on the size of the company involved. Mm. Because if uh, if these are small, you know, quasi startups, then they won't be able to pick up those liabilities. Mm. They just won't have the cash reserves to do so. Um, conversely, I think two companies who will probably prepare very well and and will be secure in that is Google and Facebook because. They can get the informed consent. Generally speaking, people trust them and, and they have mountains of cash if it goes and, wrong. And and it's their first first party data. And if they need to, they can sell it in a segmented way as, as Facebook already do. So they seem to be very well prepared. I really agree with that. We've talked a bit about uh, platforms and accountability. You know, the other topic that you raised at the start as, as being a, an area of focus for you was uh, agency client alignment. What progress do you think has been made in the last 12 months and what are you hoping to see in the next 12 months? I think uh, on alignment, Lisbon has seen quite a lot of progress in the course of the last year. I mean, the the number of people who uh, have uh, adopted in whole or in part the um, the Lisbon Media Services Framework, the fact that you've got some um, independents now making substantial progress into the market using the the framework as well, all of that is, is, uh, is good news. And the agencies themselves say that they're encountering it you know, the big network agencies say they're encountering it and using it on a, on a day-by-day basis with the uh, the clients that they're, they're working with. Um, I think there is um, more that needs to be done. Um, and I think the big issue for me is it's the other side of the coin. So I can understand from an agency point of view why, why the media services framework or the contract could be seen to be another bludgeon on the part of um, procurement to 
drive down client fees uh, even further. And the issue that we'd identify in the, in the marketplace is that you know, client fees have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk in, in, in media agencies uh, over time, particularly in the, the network agencies. And networks have been undercutting each other and procurement have been coming back every year or two for another another bite. And while that client fee income has been declining, uh, the compensation has been made in other ways through other sources of margin, whether that's principal buying and trading or whether it's through some form of uh, you know, technology or consultancy margin opportunity in, in the meantime. And that has meant that there's been a real misalignment of, of client interests with those of the of, of the agency. What we have seen is that there's some really good examples now coming through uh, of people who are uh, facing into the issue uh, at the start of their renegotiation or their, or their pitch process uh, and insisting that um, terms that are open are the basis on which they're going to be awarding hammering out some of the big issues before they get to uh, to the shortlist uh, and, and as a result ending up with a much more equitable set of terms where you know, the agency is properly um, remunerated uh, and incentives are structured in a way that they're in line with the client's own objectives and reduces or if not eliminates the, uh, the reliance on other sources of income. And I think that, you know, that brings us much closer back to the model of clients working with agencies that we'd like to see in the in the marketplace so there's more of that that's needed in the course of the next year yeah, I'd, I'd echo all of that um you know we at pwc have been working with this bar on um evolving that uh, the the template framework for contracting media agencies i have to say we've been really um gratified by the positive engagement from all the main agency network groups uh, i think they all recognize that the contract is is here. It's something that they need to work with, um, and a lot of them have given very detailed, uh, very well thought through feedback on on how to make the contract, you know, workable on, on all sides. I think that's been really positive. There's also been really good engagement around digital advertising in particular. Um, so, you know, there are some real issues out there. So, uh, if, if if fraudulent impressions have been paid for, and the agency identifies that after they've been paid for, is that an agency liability or, or is that a client liability um, if you can't recover the monies from the, from the fraudster at the other end? Um, and those types of issues require a collaborative response. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. It's one of the reasons why we refer to it these days as a framework rather than a contract. That's something we discussed with the, uh, the IPA and, and the agencies. And in almost all cases, people are taking the wording and then transposing it into their own legalese. Somebody's got to pay the uh, pay the lawyers, I guess. Um, but I think from our point of view, it is about making sure the right discussions are taking place and agreement is forged around some of the key issues that sit underneath this. So some of that's commercial. It's about really hammering out an understanding of what's going to happen with rebates, uh, where are the other sources of margin, are there potential conflicts of interest, what are the audit rights, um, how are you going to treat data? Um, but on the other side of the, the, the fence, it's also about who's going to be responsible for adhering to standards, whether that's standards of brand safety or what's going to be done around uh, ad fraud and viewability. And all of those things are uh, embedded in the framework. And I think as much as anything else, it's intended to ensure that those things are sorted out and thought about at the contractual stage rather than walked into uh, blindly. Um, and I thought the point that you made around... Um Agency, you know, is spot on that procurement functions at clients need to recognise that agencies need to be able to make a reasonable margin on their work. You know, agencies must deliver transparency. Clients must deliver uh, appropriate rewards in, in return for good service. I think that's absolutely right. And and that is by one of the things that we've we've had for a while now is a, 
uh, a marketing procurement uh, action group uh, and a subset of that uh, who are more at the forefront of what we've been terming value beyond savings who who really get the point you've just just made that it's about value rather than just than just about uh, just about savings uh, and we'll be working with that group as well as with the agency community uh, with um, uh, marketeers, uh, hopefully with yourselves as well in the course of the, the, the next year, with a view to starting to hammer out what some of the procurement best practices and what might the remunerations model, models look like that we could take to the market to, to embolden marketeers to be able to have some of those conversations which on the surface can appear quite difficult, especially if um, the result of uh, open terms is that there's more in the client fee in order to get better value. Uh, and the more informed and the more we can speak the language of finance in taking that case into the business, I think the more success that we'll have. When we think about who's buying these services mm. at clients, it's normally a, a combination of, of, of the marketing division and, and the procurement mm. people. And um, do we think here that the challenge is that procurement doesn't understand advertising and marketing, or is it that advertising and marketing don't understand procurement and finance? You know, I think it's both, and it varies almost on a case-by-case basis. I can, I can think of examples where we have CMOs who work really very closely with their procurement teams, uh, get their sleeves rolled up and make sure that the needs of the business and the growth drivers are what is, what's driving the, the, the process of procurement, uh, and others who uh, absolve themselves and uh, allow procurement or legal to, to run the process. And I think if you do that, then then that lack of understanding will, will, will continue. Um, I, I mean, I do think there's more um, responsibility that marketeers need to to take in order to lean into understanding what the big business issues are that they need to be um, addressing as they come forward with their with their proposals, uh, and by the same token as we've seen in that enlightened marketing procurement community, um, understanding that value is not just a question of getting everything at the cheapest cost, particularly if there are unintended consequences, as we are clearly able to demonstrate in this instance. And I, I think there are really some positive signs here. So. Um uh, PwC have been supporting uh, the UK government on their current media agency pitch process, and the the, the overwhelming majority of the uh, valuation criteria focus on uh, campaign outcomes, um, on innovation, quality of service, uh, and a transparent remuneration model, um, with only a small fraction based on on price. Whereas if you went back four years ago, almost the whole award would have been based on price. Um, and I, I'm less familiar with some of the other big pitches that have happened in the last couple of months, but I'm told that there have been similar trends uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, there have, and we'll be taking, talking about some of those at, uh, at our conference on, on March the uh, 6th. Uh, had to get the, uh, the plug-in. And um, I'm you know, delighted to hear of the progress that you're making with, uh, with the government contract as well, because that's, that's a difficult one to get uh, right. Uh, and uh, clearly a, a lot of stakeholders and, and very, high, uh, very high visibility. But what about your sense of... Um, what clients are doing to take things in-house. I get the sense sometimes that there's a bit more talk than action. We certainly see some downstream activities coming more in-house, particularly as production and creative needs to be, be bolstered. But uh, what about the media side and particularly on digital trading desks? Yeah, I, I, th- I think a lot of this is, is overblown, personally. I think um, if you have the scale of a, of a P&G or a Unilever, then absolutely you probably can effectively bring uh, programmatic trading in-house. Um, but assuming you're much smaller, I think you face challenges with understanding the right ad tech stack to 
bring in-house. And then you face challenges with finding the right people who want to come and work in, in your environment, um, in your geographical location. Um, one member of my team um, who uh, has used to be head of programmatic trading at, at Dentsu and, and at MediaMath, and at one point he was in charge of in-housing a programmatic team for a major supermarket, not in this country, uh, um, in Australia. And the challenges he found with founding the right people who wanted to come and work in that environment, not in the city centre, not in an agency culture, were a real challenge. So I think, um, I think some clients absolutely will bring programmatic in-house, but I think more, the more common model that will involve is a fully disclosed model being operated by an agency, but where the client has full read access, read-only access to the uh, to the trading platforms. I, I think that's exactly what we, what we see. The um, the taking it on for yourself is for the very few and the very big. One of the things that is interesting is is as the sort of chief marketing officers, uh, as their technology budget has grown, you've started to see this phenomenon of big consultancies um, get more interested in selling services to those. CMOs, I think Accenture is the obvious example. Yes, and, and and the proposition that they are the only um, full customer experience uh, you know, agency offering uh, out there. What do you what do you make of that as a consultant yourself? As a consultant myself, um, so I think that the trade press uh, tends to bracket all of the consultancies in, in, into one bucket, mm. and I think that actually that the reality is more nuanced. Um, absolutely, Accenture are. Um, buying up agencies, I think they've bought 17 in the last 12 months. They are competing head-on with agencies in pitches. Um, they would say they are winning some of them. Uh, Sir Martin was quick to point out that they're not winning many of them. Um, but but that is absolute competition. Uh, and I, I can't be sure, but I suspect IBM will move the same way. You know, At their hearts, those businesses are tech implementation businesses. CMOs have big tech budgets. Therefore, they need to be able to sell big to CMOs. Um, I think for uh, for ourselves at PwC... And the other uh, accounting firms, so EY, KPMG, Deloitte, I think the situation is slightly different. Um, we are assurance businesses uh, at heart. Um, we also are all uh, owned by partners. Um, so we can't afford to uh, buy agencies, unlike Accenture and IBM, which are public companies. Because if we start buying agencies, we're essentially taking a big gamble with partner money. And uh, as a partner, I, you know, I know how I'd feel about that. So I think that what you will see is Accenture and IBM competing with agencies. I think the uh, the big four, certainly we at PwC, will be more interested in uh, ensuring that there is a transparent media market, not in trying to disrupt that market. Mm. And I'd certainly say that um, when it comes to provision of creative services and, and marketing communications as a whole, I'm not quite sure exactly what's being added here. Where you could see some real opportunity is as you think about restructuring that's required and capability building in the light of the dramatic changes that businesses are having to make to their business models. Um, the couple of consultancies you've talked about would be well placed based on their previous experience to have the right relationships and the overview to say this is how you might go about go about doing it. But the but the pitch that uh, part of that is uh, around the technology stack that gets into the uh, downstream execution of marketing, I think, for all the reasons we've just talked about, is likely to be overplayed. So, Phil, we've talked a lot about uh, about what's gone right for Isbar in the yeah. last 12 months, hopefully the next 12 months. Um, let's talk about something that's gone wrong. What's gone wrong in your career oh. in the past? 
Well, I'll, um, I'll I'll say two things. You know, one of one of which um, I'm not sure I could have done much about, and uh, the, the other was definitely a learning. Um, the the first was uh, uh, food discounting. I spent the uh, mid nineteen nineties in uh, in Europe, and I and I watched the German discounters, the European discounters, really make huge progress against packaged goods companies there, uh, and came away with a very strong conviction that food discounting would was set to grow in the in the UK to the extent that I I joined the board of a food ca- discounter, the biggest food discounter at the time in the UK. Um, what I didn't get right, so right was the fact that I was about ten years too early. So food discounting did take out take off, but literally 10 years after uh, after I'd uh, I'd made my move and that was uh, not so good. I kind of feel with my uh, Isbar hat on uh, I couldn't have timed my, my arrival uh, better uh, and that's very much serendipity but I, I arrived we had the Mark Pritchard speech and you know we were off into, into 2017. Um, probably a bit more seriously I think one of the things that I've, I've learned along, along the way is um, about the uh, importance of stakeholder management uh, so not just managing your own patch and your own organization but having uh, antennae out for broader st- broader stakeholders inside and outside the organization and also the stakeholders up the organization as, as well so um, I, I would say as, as I've gone through my career I've, I've once or twice made the mistake of minding my own patch and being a little bit too proud of what I've done uh, within that narrow confine and not done a good enough job of uh, of, uh, of, of managing my uh, you know my my broader interest group and that's something that I always keep at the uh, front of my mind these days what about you come on um pass up so uh the the, th- the single big lesson that really sticks with me from from my career actually I, I've been at PwC for 19 years but before that um straight out of college I was a recruitment consultant for uh, just under a year recruiting temporary uh, and back office staff for the investment banks. And I vividly remember getting a job spec faxed over to me, which shows how long ago this was, um, finding three great CVs for that job um, and then uh, transcribing some of the job spec onto the CVs to make them look really good for the roles and then faxing those CVs back to the bank who were normally really quick to respond. And I heard nothing all day, all day, all day. My manager eventually was like, you know, what is going on here, Sam? You know, they normally come back to us immediately. And then eventually I realised that I had carefully faxed those CVs, not to the bank that had the vacancies, but to the bank they were currently working at, <laughs> where they'd been picked up by their boss who didn't know they were looking externally. Uh, so the lesson I learned from that is uh, just just think before you act. Press button. Press button. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, more seriously, the, the lesson I learned at PwC is um, for many years I was told that the way to get on in PwC was to focus in areas that weren't the ones that most interested me personally. So I've always loved media, whether that's books, newspapers, films, TV, radio, and that was always my passion. That was always the sector I wanted to focus on. But inevitably, I would be have uh, senior partners telling me that there was an opportunity in corporate treasury or there was an opportunity in pharmaceutical uh, and, and so on. Um, and it took a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of willpower or a lot, or a lot of strength of conviction to say actually I can see that's a good opportunity right now but I want to be interested in what I'm doing and that's more important to me than a quick promotion um, and that's a lesson that I really try to pass on to my teams uh, you have to enjoy what you do each day um, and enjoyment is more important than rapid career progression yeah it's that Japanese concept of do what you love and, and what you're also good at and if you can find that sweet spot you're in a good place absolutely yeah, yeah. I couldn't, couldn't agree more where do you get your your inspiration from? Short answer is I don't really know. I know that I'm 
desperately counter-suggestive. Uh, but by the same token, I do read a lot from those people uh, who whose views I, I think are admirable. What I tend to find, though, is that it, the, the inspiration emerges from those moments where I'm running or swimming or you know out there and something's percolating in my mind and it, and it comes back out so I'm not quite sure what the source of the inspiration is but I, I do think keeping my eyes open reading a lot trying to read counter views as well as the views that you know most sympathize sympathize with my own uh, you know helps you to come up with, with better solutions I'm gonna uh, Phil and I were chatting beforehand uh, he mentioned the, the swimming theme there so he He's, he was swimming in the serpentine this morning, which I find kind of insane. Um, conversely, I, I spent one of my holidays in the summer running 100 miles around mountains in the uh, in the Alps, which would also strike most people. Bonkers, yeah. <laughs> yes, e- equally bonkers. Uh, there is an ultra runner called Killian Horney, who is a guy who successfully ran up and down Everest without oxygen twice in one week last year. Um, and when you sort of hear or see him being interviewed, he is so incredibly humble about what he's achieved. Uh, and I find that really inspiring. But, but people who can do something utterly amazing and, and not be full of conceit about the fact they've done it. You know, mm. that, that, I think, is, is, is really inspiring. I agree. Phil, it's been great talking to you, uh, as always. Uh, thanks for your time. Sam, thank you. Real pleasure. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.